I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, Kathy. Sam, big fan, big <laughs> fan. Can I, can I just say, I remember like the very early days of our podcast, uh, you tweeted something about the show, and I was uh-huh. just like, somebody from New York City who used to work for Radio <laughs> Live has listened to our show. Oh my God, I binged like all the episodes as soon as I found it. So, so you were an outside-in listener from the early days, which I appreciate. Yes, it's so good. Can you just introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, my name is Kathy Too, and I co-host a podcast from WNYC Studios called Nancy, All Things Queer. All Things Queer. Yeah. So, Kathy Too, I called you up because I wanted to talk to you about your purchasing habits. Ugh. Do you? Would you say that you buy anything that you would classify as gear? Yeah. I mean... My backpack would be gear, right? That's gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me more about backpacks. <sighs> um, backpacks have been around since the dawn of time <laughs> when people needed to carry things from one place to another. So so what do you look for when you're, when you're buying a backpack? For me, when you find the right backpack for the right situation, it's like the heavens parted mm. and it is just the right feeling. It's the right fit. It's just, I, I don't know. It's like having a child. It's like having, you have a child. Do. Don't you feel like it's the right one for you? Oh, that is absolutely true. Yeah, now imagine that with me and backpacks. It's like a thing that it just fits like another part of my body. Are there like backpacks that you go to the story and you're like, oh, this is one that clearly has been assigned a gender. Oh, definitely. And um, for guys, it's usually some some color palette along the lines of black and gray. It's always like sleek. Hmm. It's always got to look very, um, it could fit both like an urban environment, but you can also like take it out camping with you or something. It's got to look versatile. That's what guys love apparently. Um, and then when you go to like the women's section 
and usually you have colors in all variety. Um, you have like a lot of pink and purple, um, light grays, not dark grays, because that's guys, light grays. <laughs> right. Um, and they tend to be uh, smaller, lighter, and or have superfluous things. <laughs> yeah, so like fringe or like... Fr- yes, yeah, 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 fringe. And like maybe it's just the way that I've been conditioned to think about these things where I just assume now at this point, because of all the backpacks I've seen, um, that backpacks that are marketed towards men are just more functional. Um, I tend to see things in multicolors and think that they're just pretty. They're meant to just be pretty and not so much functional. So I feel like I just like glance over them and I head straight to the guy section because in my mind, I'm like, this will be backpack that I will find useful and not just pretty. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's like the colors are like a cue that you know it's going to be garbage. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Uh, oh my god, am I am I just like biased though against colors? I, <laughs> I don't know. So I have heard complaints about quote unquote women's gear since forever for as long as I've been hanging out with women in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. But as a very conventionally shaped fit dude Mm -hmm. i'm i'm like not at all the right person to investigate this question (laughs) because everything's made for me it's like it's like oh here's another piece of apparel that fits perfectly yeah 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 So this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And today we're digging into the fraught relationship between the gear industry and gender. And to do this, we've talked to three women who are on the front lines of this question because, frankly, I am not the right person for the job. Bless you, Sam. Bless you. Let me, let me rewind. So I spent about two and a half years looking for the perfect bike. To start us off on this tour, I'd like you to meet Hannah Weinberger. She's a freelancer and a Twitter friend, and she reviews a lot of gear. Um, I have been on staff at Outside Magazine, Bicycling Magazine, and Wirecutter. Okay, back to her search for the right bike. And... A few companies segmented out women's versions, so I felt kind of compelled to understand better the design philosophies behind these products if they were things that I was going to be reviewing. So here's the central tension that she lays out when it comes to the gear industry and women. When do women actually need something different, and when are companies just looking to make more money by selling women a product that is essentially the same? Okay, so, so, so. So Body Glide, right? Okay, yeah. Everybody uses Body Glide. Body Glide, if you somehow don't know, is a product that looks like a stick of deodorant that you rub onto your skin to prevent chafing during sports. Body Glide has really extended their product line in recent years to have Body Glide that's basically Body Glide, but they've got like <laughs> Body Glide skin, um, Body Glide foot, because each of your Skin patches need something Some sort very of different, different formulation. I'm not a dermatologist, so I'm out here just making egregious claims. But anyway, they have Body Glide Her. Yeah. And when I looked into the ingredients list, it's really just that 
you know, there are more emollients and it smells slightly better. And uh, lo and behold, the stick is pink. And I just, I don't, you know. Like she said, she's not a dermatologist. But the point is that even though there are some items that probably would work fine for either gender, companies will produce a new product if they can convince you to buy it. Hannah has made a nifty little flowchart showing when she thinks women should shop in the women's section. Basically, the question comes down to, how much is the item actually touching your body? A base layer designed to wick sweat away from you? It'd be nice if that was tailored to fit you. A bike, on the other hand, you really only touch with your hands, your butt, and your feet. So maybe only those specific parts need to be tweaked for your body. It seems like the first major piece of outdoor gear for women is the jock bra or the jog bra. Um, in 19, the mid-1970s, two companies created sports bras for women. So there's Moving Comfort and this group that created the jock bra, which I, I'm still trying to parse whether it's just an urban legend, but it's based on what a jock strap would look like if it were for your top half as a woman. The story of the sports bra is, as far as I can tell, a pretty triumphant one. A female-owned company makes a female-designed product that was quickly adopted by grateful women everywhere. But as Title IX helped to usher more women into sports through the 70s, gear companies started to see dollar signs. In the 80s, K2 put out a ski called the Ladies' Top Performance Ski, which did not offer the same performance benefits as the men's models and was really targeted at beginner skiers. When you're trying to turn, when you're trying to really shred a turn and you need that, you know, that spring and snap and, you know, the camber needs to support you, you're not going to get it with that ski. And so begins the era of shrink it and pink it. The whole idea of shrink it and pink it is that um, women's products are an abstraction of men's products. So women are an afterthought in the design process. And what happens um, is that you will take your men's product and make it smaller and make it a female appealing color. So we're in this period, so so 80s and 90s, where everything's getting um, uh, shrunk and, and punked. <laughs> Shrinked and pinked. Shrinked and pinked. Did you get a sense from folks who you talked to who were athletes in this period or, or um, you know, female people in the outdoor industry in this period that, that, that they saw this as better than the sort of like unisex, boxy, flappy, uh, you know, not really fitting anyone times? For the most part, it was an improvement, if not a parallel move. Um for women's specific clothing, it can be really helpful uh, because you're going to find pants that are slightly more tailored to your body, shirts that don't chafe as much because there's not as much loose material. Um, but when you talk to people who are really at the top of their sport, pink it and shrink it is an offense. <laughs> like one of my favorite mountain bikers, Amanda Batty, she ended up sewing her own jerseys because what? she couldn't stand the jerseys available to her. And that it's only been within the past few years that she has deigned to wear a women's short just because they were subpar. This is where Kathy's backpack angst comes from. Gear in so-called women's colors is often just lousy. 
metal gear loops become fabric gear loops. Pockets disappear. Zippers are cheaper. You do have to give the gear industry some credit. REI, in particular, launched an initiative last year called Force of Nature, which includes dozens of profiles of all types of female athletes, $20 million pledged to support groups that are already working to get more women outside, and a, quote, stepped-up effort, unquote, to develop more gear for women that is just as good as men's gear and actually suited for female bodies. But even today, it seems pretty clear that Shrinkit and Pinkit is still a thing. And even just getting a woman's version of a product on the shelves is something of a slog. Companies look for women to purchase unisex products before they're comfortable making a women-specific line. Um, So at Camelback, they are redesigning their unisex trail running vests to have a wider size run because women have been buying those unisex trail running vests, even if they aren't designed for women's bodies, it's, you know, the best option available to them. Right. So it's like this weird chicken and egg thing where exactly. a certain number of women need to, like, sacrifice their bodies using something that's not optimal <laughs> before the rest can can have the benefit of something that's actually designed for them. Modern human sacrifice. Perfect. God damn it, Sam. I have been a human sacrifice. <laughs> do you feel like you've been a human sacrifice? Uh, yeah, now I do. Yeah, and well, and that's just gear for women who fit the industry's image of the, like, quote-unquote outdoorsy woman. But what if you don't fit that image? That's something we're going to get into after a break. Today on Outside In, we're talking about how the outdoor industry has historically really struggled to get it right when it comes to making gear for women. And even then, that's just when it comes to women who fit the heretofore male-dominated industry's idea of what an outdoorsy woman looks like. Dan, this is full-on overstimulating. There's such a smell to outdoor gear. It's like... It kind of smells like ski wax. No, I was going to say, it (laughs) smells like the Nordic Lodge is growing. With this history in mind, we sent our contributor, Cordelia Zars, on a field trip to a gear show. This is like a very... uh, Man-centric meat station. Yeah. Number one sports nutrition meat snacks. <laughs> can you say that a little bit deeper? <laughs> meat snacks. That's as low as I can go. <laughs> She's tagging along with Elise Rylander. Yes. Yeah, so my name is Elise Rylander. I use she/her pronouns, and I work with Out There Adventures, which is based in um, the Seattle area. This was the winter outdoor retail show in Denver, the largest gear expo in the world. Which means... The advertisements, though, I mean, still look at that woman. I don't know, it's kind of a... Oh, yeah, they're selling sex, for sure. Yeah. It's all, all of the... A lot of the women that we've seen thus far have been in your, like, high-fashion, pouty lip, mouth sort open. Of, yeah. And Elise was looking for something specific. Yeah, my, my, my queer dar just went off a little bit. But you never know, you know? She was looking for representations of people who might be queer in the advertising. And she was disappointed. Well, with one notable exception. One queer ad with Ellen DeGeneres for the, maybe her own sock line. She's rocking some socks. Doesn't look super outdoorsy, though. Nope, she's sitting in the living room next to a woman who's sitting outside. Barely outside. (laughs) (laughs) Underneath an awning. (laughs) 
Lisa's organization, Out There Adventures, takes queer kids on trips in the outdoors. She grew up in Wisconsin, and like a lot of us, being outdoors was where she felt like she could be herself. I was totally a tomboy growing up, and now as an adult I have short hair. I express my gender on the more masculine side. When I go back to the Midwest, I get served all the time. And I was able to wear whatever I wanted, to do whatever I wanted, to be as much of a tomboy as I wanted to be when I was in those outdoor spaces. And I had a difficult time assimilating into more urban cultures because there are just a total, there's a totally different set of expectations in those spaces. And then as an adult, I have found that to be true as well. You know, when I was living in Alaska, when I moved up there, there, my mom was a bit fearful. She said something like, don't go waving your rainbow flag up there. And I found that that space was the most welcoming of all the places that I have lived, even more so than Seattle, um, because folks up there just possess a different mentality. And they're so they're just so concerned with other things. They don't really have the time to to be like, oh, why is your hair short or why are you wearing men's pants? Um, they're just like, hey, my car broke down. I need some help. Can you give me a lift to town? You know? Kathy, too, and I interviewed Elise together. Okay, so maybe just to get into it a little bit, I personally, I love being outdoors. And I think for me, the hardest thing is trying to find clothes that fit me, especially if I want to do anything that requires sort of like lots of pieces of clothing. Like snowboarding requires jacket and pants and gloves and other things. And when I go looking for them, all I see are clothes with colors that to me, seem really infantilizing. And it just, I have a hard time finding things that fit that don't look that way. Because I'm basically a tomboy, and to me, it's just never felt right. Yeah, well, I'm lucky in that the way that my body just simply is, I can often fit in like typical men's smalls. I wear like a size 32 pants pretty easily. Um, and it's it's nice because those are often the the sizes that go on sale, like at Patagonia and whatnot. <laughs> um, you know, but that's not true for for a lot of folks. And I've written a couple of articles and given a couple talks on on why everything in the women's line has to be. Usually, it's just all about yoga pants or clothes to wear to a yoga class, and then everything is a shade of purple or teal or black. You know, and those are your three options. Um, you know, and so it, it's hard to get these huge companies who have been doing things this way for their entire histories to start to think about these things a little bit differently. But we are seeing that conversation begin to shift. And it's also important to to recognize the context in which we're having this conversation, because I know that in... Um, in certain markets in uh, Asian countries, they have unisex clothes, and it is easier for them to um, to come up with things that fit a whole different host of body types that are all sorts of different sizes. Um, I think that that's harder to accomplish in the states because, or in Western cultures, because the body shapes and sizes can vary a little bit more potentially. Um, but these things are already happening in other parts of the world. We just haven't been super successful in bringing them into this particular context as of yet. I was I was thinking about this. This, if you were to talk to the outdoor industry, the ways that they might try to explain this away is is they're saying, "Listen, we're just trying to serve the market that we've got, who tend to be a certain shape, uh, and that's and that's what we're building." And and so like, hey, it's not about gender. It's just about like the people who who buy our stuff. And if we were to make stuff for bigger people or if we were to make uh, things that were built for women that didn't have these feminine tones, it wouldn't get bought. Um, have you ever heard that as like an explanation? And, and do you buy it? 
You know, it's funny. I haven't ever explicitly heard that sentiment. Um, I think that is what they think. Um, but I think women who, and I'm talking, I'm, I'm making a lot of stereotypes here, but I think, you know, generally um, women who are of like the Generation X or millennial generation and especially Generation Z um, would would be totally fine buying a coat in pretty much any color. And I don't think that they would... I my I would venture to guess that the majority of women going into a store wouldn't be put off by the fact that a jacket wasn't available in purple or teal. Um, and ultimately, you know, they are concerned about their bottom line. And I think that perhaps there is that fear that it will affect it. But I, I think even more so than than them thinking that they're going to lose sales, I think they just they just don't really know. They don't have enough beta. Um, and so they're not willing to to make that sort of leap. Um, I have told a number, we've got really great relationships with a couple of, of major retailers in the industry. Um, and I've had separate conversations with a number of them, um, where I've said, you know, y'all are in a race, you might not realize it, but you are in fact competing with each other. And the first company to figure out how to make more culturally relevant clothing well is, is going to win. Um, secretly I'm, I'm motivated by trying to like prod them along a little bit quicker, <laughs> um, try to pit them against each other. Apart from taking kids on wilderness trips and aggressively prodding the gear industry, Elise helped organize the first ever LGBTQ outdoor summit. You know, so we had representation from um, huge names like the Wilderness Society, Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, Patagonia was there, North Face, REI hosted the first day and had a bunch of staff there. Um, I think that the interesting thing is the, f- the representatives that were sent from those different organizations and companies um, were there because they were queer. Um, and so I don't know that the information that was presented at the summit was you know, necessarily novel uh, to those different folks because that is you know, largely speaking to their lived experience. Because this is one of those things that, that I I sort of wonder about a lot, and that's the degree to which the industry is willing to, you know, like, this is kind of a mean way to say it, and, and, and you know, if it's not true, I apologize to anybody I offend, but like, oh, we're just going to send along the, like, token queer person who works in our company, and they're going to rep- represent at this thing, but, like, we're not actually going to do much to address the concerns that are being presented there. Um, and is that any, something that ever worries you, that the outdoor industry is just sort of like playing you along? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so partly the reason why I think that these different folks were came to this this first one is because it was the first one, right? And and so I think it makes sense. I, wasn't, I didn't take it personally that we didn't have Yvonne Chouinard there this year. Um, Next year, though, <laughs> might be a little bit of a different story. Um, and so I, I do get a little bit concerned about how how the industry might monetize certain identities or certain types of queer people and prioritize and thus prioritize them over other um, identity types. I think culturally, we aren't ready for you know, the trans woman of color to also be a badass climber, right? We, that's a, those are, that's a, a confluence of identities that is really confusing to mainstream society. And so those are the, those are the exact identities that need serious representation, but they are also not the ones that are going to get paid by REI, you know, to, to promote their Instagram account. And so I'm fearful that the industry, like it has done with, with other, 
marginalized groups will pick a couple of queer folks and they're probably going to be white and they're probably going to be cis and they might be blonde and they're going to uphold them as sort of like the the voice of the overall community. I think that it probably probably will end up being that way. <laughs> well, it's um, sort of like it's it's funny because like if that were to come to pass, that's a person who would likely already fit quite <laughs> neatly into the products they already sell. Exactly. Exactly. So, who doesn't fit very neatly into the products already being sold? Women whose bodies don't match what the outdoor industry puts into its marketing material. I know that going to the women's section, nothing's going to fit me, right? So I usually have to shop in the men's section, and that just means that my... Especially like my outerwear, like uh, I have like a mountain gear rain jacket that I got at the Columbia Outlet store here in Portland. And, um, you know, it works. It's like it's long enough and it, it fits me, but it's like definitely too big in the arms and shoulders. You know, it's not it's ill fitting, I would say. So I just like I don't know. I'm just at this point now where I don't care. Like I just want to get outside. So if I have an ill fitting rain jacket, it doesn't matter to me, you know. This is Summer Mishad Skog. I'm Summer. I founded the organization called Fat Girls Hiking. Um, we're a community-based organization um, that focuses on marginalized people getting into the outdoors and how we can give them access to the outdoors in ways that maybe other outdoor communities can't or don't. Do you, do you think it's easier for plus-size men versus plus-size women to, to find gear that fits them? Um, yeah, and totally. Even just men's clothes in general is already bigger. Um, I like sometimes I can fit into like a men's large and but you know but it would be a men's large is the same as like a women's 2x or something you know so the sizing is totally different but you know it would be nice I like I like the color purple well they don't make men's, men's rain jackets in purple so that's a really big bummer for me well and it's just, it is funny too that the, that like it, there are all these plus size clothes for men in in the men's section and it's almost just like guys have more permission to be fat than women do in our in our society. Absolutely. Absolutely because in our culture women are raised to believe that their their worth is based their their worth and their value is based on the way that they look. And men don't have those stands, those same standards that men are men's worth and value is based on other things and it has nothing to do with their size or their appearance at all it's really i mean not that not to say that like men don't experience fat phobia um or, or that you know fat oppression exists i think for any gen right. for any gender but there there definitely is more permission i think for fat men to um exist and be in their bodies in a way that women don't have that same permission and if Elise Rylander, who we talked to earlier, the founder of Out There Adventures and the LGBTQ Outdoor Summit, thinks that people like Summer are the folks who the gear industry should be supporting, Summer looks to the community she's created for that support. Um, I don't get grants. I, you know, I have started taking donations for hikes that I lead. But yeah, I don't, I personally don't really want to be sponsored by a corporation. I. Um, and I feel like if I'm taking um, money from corporations that my that their mission doesn't really align with the Fat Girls Hiking mission, then I feel like I'm selling out. Again, there are signs that one can point to that the industry is starting to get its act together when it comes to plus-size clothing. 
And once again, the example we can point to comes from REI, which has a snappily named campaign for a new initiative to create more size runs in its clothing. Less labels, more sizes. Call Summer jaded, but she's not ready to declare mission accomplished. At this point, I'm so bitter. <laughs> like, I don't even care. I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to like congratulate REI for their less labels, more sizes tour that they did. I, I just feel like now they're, they're just, they're finally realizing they can make money off of the, uh, off of fat people. And that's, that's their only motive. But I mean, I could be totally off base here. This is just my opinion. Um, and I definitely go there sometimes because, you know, and I'm a member, so I'm a walking contradiction, but it's hard. It's hard when you yeah, can't find yeah. stuff in your size. It does seem like this is an example of a market waiting to be tapped. A 2016 study found that the average woman in America is actually between a size 16 and 18. Though, let's just acknowledge here that women's clothing sizes are all over the map and incredibly arbitrary. And as Summer points out, there is a thriving industry of small companies that are creating plus-size activewear. So um, once upon a time, I read that Patagonia justified not making additional size runs of, of a bunch of their gear because they said doing so would create waste. That basically, that you know, people wouldn't buy the clothes and therefore it would just all go to waste and that there isn't a market for, for plus-size gear. <laughs> um, just judging from our from like some of your previous comments, I take it you don't buy that. No, it's not. I mean, the thing that's funny if you're if you are an actual fat person who is like looking for plus size gear online, and those they're sold out. And it's like I know that I have a huge following on social media, and I know that when I am talking about gear to my community, um, they are really strongly saying that they want these things, um, and so. To imply that it would be wasteful is really, to me, just just also implying that um, that they don't value fat people in the outdoors, that they don't value or even believe that fat people are going outdoors. I mean, I personally don't want your your Patagonia, but other people do. So you make it for them, make it for the community, and it will it will get sold, you know. Too. Yes. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Always. To me, I think that the question here that a lot of people who are maybe skeptical of the ideas that we've gone through here want answered is, is this demand that exists and is just not being served? You know, plus-sized women, women who don't want pink and purple stuff. Or would the gear industry really have to take a hit in order to produce the products that these women want and say they need? So, Sam, let's just pivot just a little bit to say the film industry and how films are coming out now. Black Panther, Crazy Rich Asians. Like the markets are actually there. It's whether or not the people who are at the very top who have all the resources to actually even take a hit. Take that risk. To take that risk, yeah. Because if they don't, who else is supposed to do that? Well, and anybody who says, oh, you know, if this was a market, then the market would have provided gear that these women are looking for and that just ignores like who has access to capital <laughs> oh totally yeah the idea of a free market is uh, really 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 by is biased towards people of privilege so like what are we supposed to do sam until that happens until somebody takes a risk what are we supposed to do 
wear ill-fitting clothing that is in colors that make you feel <laughs> alienated, of how, course. How does that make you feel <laughs> you had to do that? Uh, well, you know, because I've never had to. I have basically no place to start. Interesting. All right, Sam, you meet me in what's between New Hampshire and New York? Uh, Connecticut. We'll go to Connecticut. We'll go to a shop. I will dress you up in the women's <laughs> section. <laughs> And then you tell us how you feel. <laughs> I'm actually, this is, this is how we should have ended this episode. <laughs> this is what we should have done. What are we doing with ourselves here? Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Kathy Tu, with help from Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Hannah McCarthy, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer, and Maureen McMurray is our director of Righteous Anger. If you're interested in the work being done by the folks we talked to this week, you can find Summer Mishad Skog at fatgirlshiking.com. Just a heads up, she is heading to the East Coast and is looking to start some chapters here. And Elise Rylander is at outthereadventures.org. Hannah Weinberger is joyfully accepting freelance assignments wherever freelance stories are assigned. Just a reminder that we have moved our Facebook presence to a group instead of a page, and so far it is working. The discussions of our episodes have been popping off, so go to Facebook, search for outside slash in, and make sure you're asking for permission to join the group. Music in this episode came from Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Music